Lord and Heavenly Father, we, we come to you and we open up your word and we want to uh, thank you for how you have provided for us and for me. Lord, I want to thank you for the resources that you have provided um, for Keith and for the commentaries that you have had wise men write. But Lord, we thank you supremely for your word and your word is truth. Lord, we pray uh, that we would hear your truth today, uh, that any falsehood from my lips would fall aside, Lord, and that we would hear from you uh, your truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So earlier this year, uh, Queen Elizabeth II passed away, and in May next year, Charles will have his coronation and become our head of state. I can't imagine you didn't know this. It was one of the major news events of the year. And this year, this news has fired up debate whether Australia should become a republic. I'm not here to uh, persuade you for or against Charles, but I will ask you, what impact would living under a British king have for you in your daily life as an Aussie? Now, whatever your thoughts are on that question, my guess is that it wouldn't change too much for life in Australia that much at all. If we decide to ditch Charles, the biggest difference would probably be that we would have a new public holiday for Independence Day and we wouldn't have a King's birthday holiday. Six of one, half a dozen of another. The fact that we live under a constitutional monarchy doesn't affect my day-to-day life all that much although that might turn out to be a naive statement. The king's rule doesn't really demand much from me, and I can go about my life without caring what he thinks. But in our passage today, we'll see that Jesus isn't that kind of ruler. He is a king who rule, um, makes significant demands on our lives. Unlike the British royal family, if you know Jesus, He's a king you want as your ruler. The gospel according to Matthew is focusing on a theme that Jesus is king. Starting with Keith's sermon on the genealogy of Jesus, the genesis of Jesus, we saw that he has royal lineage. He is from the line of kings, descended from King David. Last week with Elon, we saw that the birth of Jesus was more than magical. Born in Bethlehem, the city of David, to the Virgin Mary, entrusted to Joseph's care. Jesus, Emmanuel, God came down to dwell with his people. Today we're introduced to Jesus through this passage indirectly through the Magi, wise men, and through another king which sets us up for a royal rumble, king versus king that sees We see that in verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. We don't know who these magi were. Traditionally, there were three of them, but that's not what the passage says. It's just an inference from the three gifts in verse 11. And there's a bit of tradition that they were kings, but again, not what the passage says. They may have been associated with kings and rulers. 
They might have been quite rich or influential, but most likely they are magicians or astrologers from a nation east of Israel, Persia, or maybe Babylon. And somehow, maybe through the remnant of Jews still living in Babylon after exile, when the star appears, the Magi correctly identify that it has to do with the birth of a king, the king of the Jews. And so they head to the place where you would naturally expect the king of the Jews to be born. They head to Jerusalem, to the palace of King Herod. Herod the Great, as he came to be known, ruled the king of the Jews from 40 BC to 4 AD. He was installed by the Roman Senate as a puppet king, and he wasn't fully Jewish. He was half Umidian from the Edomites. If you know your Old Testament history, you'll know that they're related to the Jews, but were considered their enemies. He was violent, prone to fits of rage, and was paranoid about protecting his rule. He killed all the members of the Hasmonean high royally priest family that preceded him. He killed 300 of his own court officials, more than half of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, and later in life killed two of his sons and his favourite wife. On his deathbed, he arranged for the execution of many noblemen of Jerusalem, just so that there would be sufficient mourning when he died. So, even though he was apparently quite a good administrator and he built the great temple in Jerusalem, he wasn't loved by the people. He was brutal and despotic, intolerant of every potential rival to his rule, even if those rivals were his own children. Which is why we read in verse 3, When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When someone shows up to Herod's palace, claiming that the king of the Jews has been born, that gets his attention. And so he gathers all the chief priests and the scribes, the most educated people in his kingdom, and asks them, if there was a king to be born to the Jews, where might it happen? And being experts in the scriptures, they know that the prophet Micah had promised that Israel's king would be born in Bethlehem. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Bethlehem, the house of bread, the place of Naomi, Ruth and Boaz. Bethlehem was the birthplace of Israel's greatest king, David. But the prophets, including Micah here, promised that a king would come who was even greater than David. He'd rule as a king whose origin was from ancient days, and he would rule over God's people forever, and he would rule over all creation forever. And rather than being a tyrant who exploited and crushed his people, he would shepherd them. He would lead them and protect them and feed them, all with kindness and gentleness. The contrast between this promised long-awaited king and the rule of Herod couldn't be any sharper. Matthew has set up for us a clash of kings. It's a showdown between the despotic puppet king and the true king of the Jews, the one from David's line, born in the city of David, who will shepherd God's people, Israel. 
But the contrast isn't just of kingly character. It's a contrast in response to the true king. Herod plots to destroy this rival king, and we'll come back to him shortly. But compare the chief priests and the scribes to that with the Magi. This baby born in Bethlehem is the fulfilment of all the hopes of Israel. He is the one who is going to set God's people free and lead them in peace and prosperity. The chief priests know this. They've spent their whole lives studying the scriptures. And how do they respond to the report? They ignore it. Isn't that strange? Compare that to the Magi. Gentiles, foreigners, what do they do? They come from another country to search diligently for Jesus. In verse 10, when the star came to rest over the place where he was, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Not just they rejoiced, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they go into the house and see the child and they bow down and they worship him. They break out their treasure chest and give him all kinds of gifts that are very appropriate for Jesus. Gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, and myrrh, said to be an embalming spice, a gift fitting for one about to die. Even though Jesus is just a baby, Matthew is showing us that he is already divisive. And this theme is going to run through the whole gospel. The Gentiles, outsiders, see Jesus for who he is and they make the right response. They come to him and bow down to him in joy-filled worship. But the leaders of the Jews, the people who should have recognised him, they ignore their true king. Or even worse, they actively oppose him. And that's what Herod does in this next part of the chapter. Given from what we know of Herod, it shouldn't be a surprise to us. If he is willing to kill his own children because they threaten his rule, then some kids in a country town are not a big deal to him. But God is at work protecting his son and his king, and he prompts Joseph to take evasive manoeuvres. In verse 12, the Magi are warned not to go back to Herod, and so they avoid Jerusalem on their way home. And then God sends a messenger to Joseph. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. God protects his son by sending him to Egypt. God provides for his son the finances needed to escape through the gifts of the Magi. And Egypt is the logical place to go. For God's people... Egypt was of particular significance. When Matthew quotes Hosea 11 here, he is telling us that going to Egypt isn't a coincidence. He is sending Jesus to Egypt as part of his great rescue plan. 
Egypt is the place where God's people went when they were just a tiny, wandering tribe. And it's there that they grew into the nation that God promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And it's the location of the event that defines them as a nation. Australians talk about Gallipoli as what defined our national identity, the spirit of the Anzacs. For Israel, it was Egypt, the Exodus, where God rescued them from oppression and slavery. In Hosea 11, the source of this quote, God promises that he'll rescue his people again, a new Exodus that'll leave the first one in the shade. By quoting this passage, Matthew is telling us that this isn't just a story of an oppressive king or a clash of kingdoms. It is a rescue story. Even while he is a child, Jesus is repeating the experience of Israel in the Exodus. He is going through it to identify with God's enslaved and oppressed people. He is doing it because the story he is rehearsing is actually the one that points to him, the greatest rescue story of all, where he rescues his people from slavery to sin and death. Matthew shows us that Jesus rescues his people in a new exodus. And the exodus connection runs to the next section. It is a shocking section, but knowing what we do about Herod, it is probably not surprising. He is not too concerned if there is collateral damage in his quest to wipe out every potential rival. When he finds out that the Magi have tricked him, he flies into rage. He can't find the specific child he's looking for, So he decides to kill them all, just to be safe. Herod is so threatened by this little boy that he takes no chance to wipe him off the face of the earth. Every boy under the age of two in Bethlehem and the surrounding region, a few dozen toddlers, killed to appease the paranoia of a madman. But again... Matthew wants to make sure that this isn't just a tragic story about an insecure tyrant. I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Moses and the Exodus, and the story of a fearful ruler ordering the murder of baby boys is familiar. A baby who escapes? Jesus is the new Moses, leading this new Exodus. But Matthew wants to go deeper than that, so he quotes Jeremiah 31 in verse 17. Then what was filled by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Jeremiah pictures Rachel, the matriarch of Israel, weeping for her children as they are taken away from Israel into exile, first to Assyria in 722 BC and then Babylon in 587 BC. But when Matthew gives us one verse of the Old Testament passage, he wants us to read the verse in its context. In Jeremiah 31, Rachel may weep that her children are being carried off to exile, but God tells her that she can dry her tears because he will bring her children back. She doesn't need to weep anymore because God's promise of rescue and forgiveness is being fulfilled. 
The murder of these Bethlehem boys is part of Israel's ongoing experience of suffering. But this wickedness isn't the final word for God's people. The mothers of Bethlehem won't mourn forever. With the birth of Jesus, they can dry their tears because God has sent them a rescuer, a king who will take their grief and their sorrow from them by bearing it upon himself. And that's what Matthew wants to show us in this final section from verse 19. Jesus is the king who takes away our pain. After the death of Herod, God sends another angel to Joseph in Egypt, telling him it's safe to come home. When Herod died, he didn't trust his sons, and so he divided his region of rule into three. One left to each of his remaining sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. Joseph seemed keen to head back to Bethlehem in Judea, but Herod's son, Archelaus, was ruling in that region, and out of the three sons, it was he that was in the image of the father. He celebrated his coronation by slaughtering 3,000 influential Judeans. And so, in another dream, Joseph wisely decides to go somewhere else, and he takes his family back to Nazareth. Now, even though Bethlehem was a small town, it had a bit of credibility. It would have had a sign as he drove into town saying, Bethlehem, birthplace of David, Israel's greatest king. Nazareth had none of that. Nazareth was a despised place. Nazareth is in Galilee of the Gentiles, about 10 kilometres from the birthplace of Jonah, the prophet to the Gentiles, a hint that Jesus' message was to be taken to the nations. But Nazareth is a tiny town, half the size of the already small Jerusalem, Bethlehem. Nazareth was placed on one of the trade routes to the world, but it was not a place where the Jews would stop in by. It was despised because of its insignificance. And for Matthew, that's exactly the point. Joseph's decision to take his family to Nazareth in fulfilment of what the prophet was spoken by the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this fulfilment is a tricky one because no prophet says those words. And that's probably why Matthew says in verse 23 that it's a fulfilment of what the prophets, plural, had spoken. It, is a fulfillment, it isn't a fulfilment of just one passage of scripture. It's a fulfilment of the whole story of the Bible, which is the case with all of these quotes. So there could be a bunch of stuff going on here, and that's typical for Matthew. He loves to weave layers of meaning. It could allude to the special Nazarite vow that people took, like Samson in the Old Testament. He is set apart wholly to God. Maybe a little more likely is a pun on the Hebrew word for branch, which is netzer. It is said that puns are the lowest form of wit, but God seems to like puns. They're all throughout the Bible. Who am I to deny this gift that he has given us? A netzer a branch, leads us to Isaiah 11, where the promised Messiah, the king who is going to come to rescue God's people, is like a branch from the stump of Jesse. That is King David's father, Jesse, the son of Obed, 
the son of Boaz and Ruth. And there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That fits with what we've seen so far in Matthew's Gospel. He is the new David, the new king, who will bring God's people out of their time in exile. But the most probable thing on Matthew's mind is something else we see in Isaiah. The fact that Jesus comes from a town that is despised, like Nazareth. It shows us that Jesus is the despised suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Verse 3 says this about him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This baby, the one that we've seen, is the long-awaited king from David's line, the son of God who becomes human, the one who is going to rescue God's people and end their time of exile. He does it by coming one who is despised and rejected. Having Nazareth as his hometown was a stumbling block for a lot of Jews. Think of Nathaniel in John 1. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And that rejection is a theme that runs through his whole life and ministry. And it reaches his, its fulfillment in Jesus' execution on the cross, where the Son of God is rejected by his own people and by his own creation. And that starts here with his rejection by Herod, the puppet king rejecting the true king. This little boy was such a threat that Herod was willing to kill every boy under two in the region around Bethlehem. And that might sound extreme, but if you don't see this little boy as a threat, then perhaps it's because you haven't understood him properly. If you really saw who he was, then I think you might see him as a threat too. Because this story isn't just a clash of kings, it's a clash of our allegiance. Jesus didn't come to unseat Herod from the throne of Judea. His sights were much higher than that. He is a king who doesn't demand just our outward allegiance. He demands that every knee in heaven on earth bow before him. He demands to rule every single moment of your life, every single thought in your head. There is no part of your existence that he doesn't rule over. Jesus is king, not just over Sunday, one night a week and half an hour in the mornings, but king over the whole week, over our whole year, over our whole lives. That is a threat because we want to run our own lives. The mantra of this culture is, be true to yourself. You are the ruler of your own life. No one else can tell you what to do or how to be. Our sinful inclination is to run our lives as a republic of one, where I am the president. And so, if you want to rule your own life, 
then this little boy is a threat to you. And so the second implication we can draw from this passage is that it is possible to know all of this, to know all the details about Jesus and still not get the point. The chief priests and the scribes that Herod called together, they knew all the details they needed to correctly identify Jesus. They'd spent their whole lives studying the scriptures that pointed to him. He is the king and the redeemer that the people had longed for for hundreds of years. And what do they do when they find out that the baby is born in Bethlehem to be king of the Jews? Nothing. They go home. We don't know why, but if I can draw some of Matthew's later chapters into thinking, it may be that they see Jesus as a threat too. It's possible to have all the clues and miss the one that they're pointing to. Even if you've grown up in church, you've heard all the Bible stories, maybe you're the kid of an elder, that counts for nothing if you won't give up the rule on your own life and hand it over to King Jesus. But if you follow all the information, you follow the clues to Jesus and the king that they're pointing to, you realise that his rule isn't actually a threat at all. We're threatened by the rule of Jesus when we think that he will rule us with an iron fist, that his aim is to suck out all the fun and joy out of our lives. We might not think it explicitly, but that is how we feel. We feel that having Jesus rule over us will be like that. But if we feel that, we've mistaken Jesus for the sort of king that Herod is. When we follow the clues to see who Jesus really is, he is not a tyrant. His rule is not burdensome. He is the king, but he is also the rescuer, the redeemer. Jesus, Emmanuel, both 100% God and 100% man, He is our perfect kinsman redeemer, the king redeeming a people to himself. This king hasn't come to lay out burdens upon us. He's come to bear our griefs and our burdens and our sorrows. The very next verses in Isaiah 53 about Jesus, the despised servant says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Jesus hasn't come to lay up burdens upon people. He's come to relieve burdens of the already afflicted people. He's come to relieve the burden of an oppressed people who have been sin against and hurt. He's come to relieve the burden of a broken world filled with conflict and strife. He's come to relieve the burden, as Isaiah says, of our transgressions and our iniquities. He has come to redeem us, to bring us into his kingdom as his people. Israel couldn't redeem themselves from Egypt. 
Judah couldn't bring themselves back from exile. These horrors are just a picture of the slavery and exile that we all live in because of our sin. And we can't deliver ourselves. But Jesus is the king who has come to do it for us. Ultimately, it doesn't matter for our day-to-day lives whether we live under a British king as our head of state. There is only one royal that we need to be concerned about. When we look closely at Jesus, we don't see a jealous, self-serving tyrant. We see a king who demands that we submit every area of our lives to him. And then he rules it with gentleness and mercy and grace. He rules it by taking all of our burdens and bearing all of our griefs and our sorrows. He rules it by taking the punishment for our sins and suffering and healing and peace. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this baby that we've met today in your word, the one who is the King of the Jews. We thank you that you preserved him through oppression and violence and opposition. Father, we pray that you'd help us follow the clues and see what sort of king he really is. Help us see that his demand on every area of our lives is not a burden, that we won't miss out on something good. Help us instead see that he has come to relieve our burdens, to bear our sins and to bring us peace and healing. Help us see that he is our redeemer, who has rescued us and brought us into his kingdom. Help us see that it is a delight to sit under his rule. And help us, like the Magi, to joyfully come to bow down and worship and obedience to him. We pray this in his name. Amen.